Well, welcome everybody. This is the very first episode of the Ghouls in the House podcast. I am Natalie Latofsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. Some of you may know me as the Doctor of the Dead. And you may know us previously from the Doctor of the Dead podcast. And if you're wondering where that went and why we've started a new show, then you didn't listen to the last Doctor of the Dead podcast, and you can find it at atvpublishing.com, where we explain all of this to you in exhaustive and boring detail, so we won't go over it again. Welcome to Ghouls in the House. We knew from the very beginning that starting things off again and having a slightly wider remit to cover horror and sci-fi and whatever we really wanted to cover, we would devote the first episode to one of our mutual favorite films of all time that we watch over and over and over again, which is where the title of the podcast comes from, and that's House on Haunted Hill from 1959. But then you also decided it would be a little more than that. Yeah, I thought if we're going to launch into this with House on Haunted Hill, we need to watch the original for the bazillionth time. But then also we should watch the remake of House on Haunted Hill. Then you informed me that they had done a direct-to-video sequel to the remake called Return to House on Haunted Hill that I had never even heard of. And I've rarely regretted knowing something as much as I did that. (laughs) If you hadn't have known, we wouldn't have watched it. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. But here we are, knowing and watching. Yeah. Just last night, we finished, uh, over the last couple nights, we watched our favorite, and then we watched the remake Um, which was a second time, as far as we can tell, for both of us on the 99 House on Haunted Hill. I feel like maybe I've watched it more than that. I did own the DVD. We found it in my DVDs. I owned it. I don't know why. I I don't know why. But but we definitely hadn't seen Return to House on Haunted Hill and watched that for the first and last time last night. (laughs) And we are prepared to spoil the heck out of it for you, yes. so that you do not have to subject yourself to it. Sometimes we will give you spoiler warnings and tell you pause here if you want to watch something and then come back to it. We're not going to give you that for Return to House and Haunted Hill because I'd almost be disappointed in you if you did go and watch it after we talked about it. Yeah, no, don't do that. Don't do that to yourself or your loved ones or, or even people you don't care for all that much. It's it's just not a good idea. But we'll get to that. First up, though, we're going to talk about the movie we love, which is House on Haunted Hill. And one of the things that occurs to me uh, right off the bat is that you and I have often talked about how many of our favorite movies are movies that center around a place, a house. Sometimes it's a ship that functions basically narratively like a house. But it's this idea, we like the idea of going back in and staying with those people for a while in that place. And the thing is, they're usually places that are under extreme duress with murders happening, (laughs) like Night of the Living Dead or The Thing. But we like going back into those places. And I've I've also seen on Twitter recently several other people just randomly around the whole horror community talking about how people don't seem to understand that for many of us, horror storytelling is comfort food. House on Haunted Hill is one of our favorites. Yeah, like I wouldn't want to be a guest at the party, 
No. Um, or I don't know. I don't know if I'd mind being a guest at that party. Well, I'd stay I wouldn't in the main be, room. I wouldn't want to be a guest in the remake. Okay, definitely not. Um, but I don't know that I'd mind being guest the original. I think that perhaps if I were a guest, I would have encouraged them to make better choices, and then there wouldn't have been a movie. This is also a problem routinely for me inserting myself into movie plots where I say, but if they had just done X, everything would have been fine. And it would have been a 10 minute movie and there'd be nothing for us to enjoy. So maybe it's better I don't go to the party. So what is it about House on Haunted Hill that we love so much? I think I think we should break it down in a few different ways. I mean, on the face of it, it's a pretty straightforward sort of noirish murder mystery there is nothing supernatural in house on haunted hill it's not a fantasy film it's it's a thriller in which i mean we don't usually do even when we did dr the dead we don't do plot synopsis too much but i mean basically you know vincent price is frederick lauren he's a multi-millionaire he invites them all there turns out this is actually a cat and mouse game he's playing with his latest wife who he knows is plotting to kill him the question is who gets there first and everyone else are basically just pawns in this little game they're playing between the two of them. Who's going to kill who first? But it's couched as if this is a haunted house party and they don't really know these people intimately. They're just people, although one of them is there for a reason. I also think it's important to note that both Lauren and his wife think they're the cat. That, yes. Like Both of them think they're the cat and the other one's the mouse. But it is a cat and mouse game. It's just there's two cats and two mice and uh, a puppy dog that comes in later. <laughs> and we have uh, one of the standard Weasley little drunk character actors of all time, Alicia Cook Jr., who's Watson Pritchard, who gives us the background on this house basically sets up the idea that there's something creepy going on in that house. But it's like many houses, including the Hill House from The Haunting and Hill House, the the myriad other versions of these stories in which these houses have had multiple murders and like these sad psychic traps. But they're not really supernatural. It's just the idea that this is a place where lots of horrible things happened. And one of the joys of this movie for me is... There's nothing supernatural going on. It's just people. We've talked about, too, for me, how much I love the Scream movies. And the reason I love them is because there's nothing supernatural. That you're dealing with people. You're dealing with horrible people. And sometimes, like, ridiculously fast and unnaturally strong people. But people, nonetheless. There's nothing supernatural. And I think that kind of has the same feel that this does because you know someone's maneuvering something everyone's been brought there for a specific reason you don't as a viewer exactly know why at least not in the beginning and also worth noting that frederick lauren is sort of our audience viewpoint character i mean he's the one who's telling the story he's the one who's narrating it for us as everybody arrives so in a sense the movie kind of wants us to start off by seeing things from his perspective that's the thing that's also gotten me over the years too is that i mean obviously we're also we're both massive vincent price fans yes so that's one of the main reasons to love this it's genuinely considered by many including people that have devoted even far more time than we have to really researching his career 
it's considered one of his finest performances, certainly at this stage in his career, which you wouldn't necessarily, it's a relatively low budget film, you know, William Castle doing what he eventually becomes known for doing best, which is creating these neat little low budget thrillers with a hook to it, sometimes supernatural, sometimes not. This one, of course, has the shtick of if you went to the theater, we'll talk more about it later, maybe you would have had the skeleton emerjo which I assume is Emergo, not Emergo. I've never quite understood. I see, I've always thought of it as Emergo, but right. it but makes emerges. sense because he emerges. Yeah, whatever. But uh, it, he was a showman. So the idea was a movie that felt like an event. And that and if you were in the theater, it was it was like you were experiencing a ride. And more so with some of the other movies he did, I think, than this one. But I think that's because this one winds up being better than it has any right to be because of the cast and the the acting and the writing and the fact that it kind of rises above being just a stunt and being a damn good tight little character drama. But it's Vincent Price, and I think we come into it automatically sympathetic to him for who he is, means to us. But as you've pointed out, and I never really thought about it nearly as much until we started watching it together, it's very likely he killed his previous wives, who we hear died young and under mysterious circumstances. And it does seem like he's probably a murderer. Yeah, I mean, that's the impression that I get. We get some exposition from Mrs. Lauren, who is telling it to other people. Um, but also, I think it's sort of generally known because he's a wealthy man, he's a wealthy businessman. It's not just we have to take her word for right. it. All the cast of characters, even if they don't know each other coming in, they know who the Laurens are yes. and they know their history. So as it's told to us, she is his fourth wife. His first wife disappeared. They never found her. The second two died of heart attacks in their 20s. And obviously this looks quite suspicious, but he was cleared in every case. And it seems to me that he's not necessarily killing them because he's a murderer. Like he's not marrying people to kill them. Exactly. Uh, whatever, I guess, is there a male version of a Black Widow in the vernacular that's a good question i can't think of what the term or do we be. not think about that is that just a man what do you think listener <laughs> um you know it's not like mates then kills kind of situation i think truly he's looking for an equal like he is looking for his equal both in intellect and temperament and what that means is he's looking for someone who's also trying to kill him I think that his ideal is having a wife who he and his wife can unsuccessfully try to kill each other for their entire lives. Like, I think that is what his goal is, is to find someone who's so well matched with him that every time he moves a piece on the chessboard, they move a piece in a way that prevents the game from ending. Like, he just wants that kind of equal. This reminds me of something else now, too, that I really feel I should be remembering what it is, and I can't. So if we come up with it later, we'll talk about it in a future episode. Some movie or TV show that also did this where the the two of them are glee. Well, there's, was it War of the Roses with Michael Douglas and... Uh, there's also Killing Eve. 
I mean, there's several, I guess, where there's that idea that, like, the the attempt to kill them is part of the romance in a way. Well, for you, probably the Doctor and the Master on Doctor Who is probably the the closest relationship to that. That's true. Um, A deep, deep abiding love of trying to kill one another. Yeah. Yeah. And and then not doing it. Yeah. Because you can't do that. Then the game would be over. Yeah. So I think that that's sort of where his mind is. Okay. And that all the things that he's talking about of times that she's tried to kill him too, and he's sort of... He's very happy about it. He is. He's remembering it fondly. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not angry about it. He thinks it's very clever that she once tried to poison him. If ever a man had grounds for divorce... But can't prove them. The time will come. You'll slip up one of these days. Think so? If I live long enough. You remember the fun we had when you poisoned me? (laughs) Something you ate, the doctor said. Yes, arsenic on the rocks. And you know, I've never really thought about this movie in those terms. And we'll talk a little more later about how, I mean, this is one of those comments where I feel I have to keep stepping back to set up. Like, I'm perfectly fine with stories that have a sexual component. I'm perfectly fine with stories that, like, push the boundaries if it's valid. House on Haunted Hill to me is a movie that exists in a certain time and place and therefore doesn't need any of that nor should have any of that. And that's one of the reasons why we both found the remake and its sequel so distasteful, which we'll get to, which maybe in another context would be okay. But House on Haunted Hill feels pristine in a certain way. It's it's about murder and and all that, you know, romance and killing, but it's it, there's not a a prurient aspect to it. And yet while you're talking about how he's thinking of the death fondly, I think about the part where he pulls her hair and I'm thinking, what is sex with them like if they do anything? Or do they? I mean, is this it? Or is I feel or, like maybe trying to kill each other is it. Is it. And the thing is, I think they both enjoy it. I think in a sense she is well suited for him in that regard because she knew going into it that his first three wives had either disappeared or died of heart attacks in their 20s. Sure. And she was like, yes, please sign me up. (laughs) Give me the ring. I'll sign the paper. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. And so I think she also went into it with open eyes. And she also is not interested in a divorce. Like she's not interested in anything. She is interested in the absolutes. Of like, I'm going to kill you or die trying. And I think he is also looking for that type of person. And I think he's probably disappointed that his first three wives died so easily. That I think he's enjoying this. That this is part of their interplay. And his top, his sort of best case scenario is the two of them just play this game out forever mm-hmm. and they're always stepping around each other not quite murdering each other and other people presumably and having parties like this and, yeah yeah i think one tier below that in his satisfaction would be meeting somebody who is his superior in which case she kills him and deserves everything and mm-hmm. should get everything that he has and then below that which is sort of where he's been living so far is that he is better at the game than everyone he's married so far. 
and he's in essence disappointed that that he has been better than he wants to find an equal i think he'd be happy knowing he was bested by a superior but he is sort of stuck with people who are not as good at murder as he is you also for that very reason like recontextualized for me a scene that i just never thought much about except for just a nice touch which is like late in the movie where he goes back to the bedroom at one point he thinks she's this is after she's supposedly hanged herself or been hanged and he smashes the glass and just a neat little touch and your point was that he's disappointed because he doesn't know what she's doing whether this is that he's been outplayed or whether she's killed herself He's mad about the turn of events in the game, not that she's dead because he doesn't believe that. Yeah, I think he feels one of two ways in that moment. I think that he either thinks that she actually killed herself and was just like, screw it, I'm out. And he's severely disappointed because that is sort of not the way this game works. Or she's sort of thrown a curveball here that he can't quite figure out where it's coming from or where it's going to. And he's pissed because he thought he was sort of on top of everything and in control, but clearly wasn't. So I think sort of before we get into their end game, maybe we should introduce our cast of characters, our our party guests. I was thinking that too. In fact, I have a few things I figured I'd run down. So I don't know if we even mentioned her name, but Annabelle Lauren is Carol Omart, who turns out from the host of other things, but she's exceptional in this and is a great foil for Vincent Price. Their scenes just, it's the perfect word, they just sparkle when the two of them are playing off against each other. And of course, she gets to have the line that we named our show after and it's perfect. Annabelle, you'd do it again if you thought you could get away with it, wouldn't you? Darling, what makes you think that? Something about you. that hanging is very uncomfortable in case you get any more ideas. Don't let the ghosts and the ghouls disturb you, darling. Darling, the only ghoul in the house is you. And don't sit up all night thinking of ways to get rid of me. It makes wrinkles. But I wanted to run down everyone else and bring up another little side thing. Well, first of all, the house is a character too, and the house is the Ennis house in L.A., one of Frank Lloyd Wright's houses is built in the 20s, considered part of the Mayan architectural revival. That particular um, square pattern is so distinctive. And one of the truly brilliant art direction touches in this film is that although the entire interior of the house, which looks completely dissimilar from the exterior, uh, was all done on sound stages, when you go to the basement, they specifically molded and built the walls to carry through that square shape so that it would look like it's the interior which is a beautiful touch but that ennis house is still there last year it it, um went out of this billionaire's hands who owned it i think it's now public and it's been restored a few times a lot of people out there know it from blade runner uh it's turned up in a lot of other places because it's so visually arresting for us it's the house on haunted hill house buffy Um, as well it was buffy it's an episode of buffy was it where is there a layer i think where dracula is or angel or something yeah but so it's in buffy it was in blade runner uh it's turned up in karate kid 3 it's been a lot of other places and uh and is currently i think either being restored or soon to be restored and 
there was a company, I can't remember their name now, and we're not getting paid for advertising anyway, so. <laughs> um, you know who you are. That has created acoustic sound tiles for your home that are exact reproductions of the square, and I definitely intend to buy some of those. They're still making them for the day when we could set up proper house for the room that has those in it, because perfect. But but no murder. In but the, no murder. Uh, no just, murder. Just, just checking. Just Dennis house stuff. Just, you know, stasking. Uh, and bottles. Closet. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, so we'll get to him too. But anyway, the Ennis house is our house where it all happens, but that exterior is completely divorced appropriately enough from the interiors, which are very basic. Uh, it looks like every old Western brothel mixed with a hotel. And I'm sure that I feel like we should, or I should be recognizing some of that from other things. I'm sure they're reusing some stuff. And if anybody else has ever figured that out, I've never seen anybody match that to other TV or... It looks very gothic, but, kind of Victorian maybe, but in a way of somebody trying to emulate it and not actually be it. Yeah, and we mentioned, of course, how, my God, that some of the busiest wallpaper and carpet in the world is in that... The um, wallpaper enough will drive you insane if you live in the home, so I can understand why it has such a history. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, it, uh, a lot of people mentioned that the house and the movie itself were probably a direct inspiration for much of what goes on in Clue. And, you know, we love Clue. So there is a perfect uh, double feature. It's these two movies. But I wanted to quickly run down our cast. Yeah. Because another thing that we've discovered is uh, since the whole quarantine lockdown kind of experience began, we have spent almost every single day watching endless amounts of mystery science theater over and over again. It's sort of our comfort level baseline. And one of the things we've discovered whenever we look up anybody in many of these movies is the horrific short lived, uh, the short lives of some of these people and the tragedies that ended their lives. A lot of actors in these movies, it's horrifying. And so it occurred to me that we've never really looked up much about many of the people in house on haunted Hill. Everybody knows Vincent Price, and he certainly had a, a long and lustrous career and lived until he was 82 and 93. But I looked up everyone else, and I wanted to just quickly run it down, and maybe this will be a transition into something you can present. Sure, go for it. Um, because I was curious if there were any tragedies in our little family of House on Haunted Hill. Vincent Price, we all need to deal with. We know icon, legend. Goes all the way to Edward Scissorhands and, you know, endless career with generations of people discovering him and loving him. As far as our Annabelle Lauren, Carol Omart had an extensive career and also turned up in another cult film, Spider Baby, in 1968. That a lot of people love, but never been a fan of that. But she stopped acting in the 70s, retired and went into New Age philosophy, spiritualism and writing and a number of other things and died at 74 in 2002. She had several marriages. It doesn't sound like things went all that well. And in 1973, one of the last times she acted was on an episode of Barnaby Jones, and supposedly while she was filming an episode, she was attacked and beaten by three men on a street in Hollywood, discharged from the hospital over her injuries, prescribed painkillers, and began a years-long addiction to prescription medication. This is straight from Wikipedia. And in the 80s, agreed to be the subject of an extensive profile in the L.A. Times, where she talked a lot about what appeared to be a deeply troubled relationship with her mother. And she says, quote, it was hammered into me that God's command was to love your mother or God will kill you. 
So I don't remember that part in the in the scripture. I'm not well versed. Yeah, but. I don't think that's the way that God's just sitting there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> loving your mother. All right, keep an eye on you. So she had some darkness in her life, and she lived till she was 74. She didn't die young, but it sounds like there's a lot about why she stopped acting and turned to spiritual things and other things. I never knew that. Which it does sound like she found her peace in that, which is, yeah. is nice for yeah. her, because it doesn't always go that way. Now, another one that's more well-known, and I won't go into much because he's extensive, is Alicia Cook. Anybody of a certain age, and I just turned 49, we all grew up with Alicia Cook on every television show and in countless movies. He turns up in a million things. He's often a drunk or a little weaselly guy. He's perfect in this. He's exactly who he needs to be. Although, again, many people also certain age know him best in a role that's very different where he played the lawyer and book loving samuel cogley in star trek who defends kirk in his court martial and he's a studious and thoughtful and learned man who basically gives kirk his love of books for later in the movies and so he has a lot of great credits and he worked and he died at 91 in 1995 so he had an extensive career he was the last surviving member of the main cast of the Maltese Falcon. That was an interesting. Thing. And he is the one who plays uh, Pritchard. Pritchard. In, Watson in Pritchard. Movie. Yes. Um, since it's a small cast, I figured it's worth going through these because oh, yeah, yeah. it's it's fun. Another thing is Ruth Bridgers are uh, probably owing tons of money to the mob uh, uh, columnist uh, is Julie Mitchum, who is Robert Mitchum's sister. And she didn't act as much. She mostly was a singer in nightclubs. And um, interesting connection with singing coming up, too. And something else I didn't know until I looked it up is she had an uncredited part as a slave in the Ten Commandments. I didn't know that. Probably can't see her, but... There are a lot of actors yeah, in the Ten Commandments. If she's in a group scene, I don't know. If you were acting at the time the Ten <laughs> yeah. Commandments was made, yeah. I'm pretty sure you were in it. I mean, the thing is, she would look basically the same because it was only three years earlier, but... But anyway, she's Robert Mitchum's uh, sister, and there, uh, there was another brother, an extensive family. She died at 88 of Alzheimer's, so not like a um, short life either. Um, but then we get into some of the, well, let me, I'll do this. Leona Anderson, this was her last film. She is Slides, the, the famous um, creepy face that pops up and scares Nora. One of the slides who are the caretakers. This was her last ever appearance in film. And she actually was a silent film actress, best remembered for recording incredibly shrill music and crediting herself as the world's most horrible singer, <laughs> which apparently she would appear on Ernie Kovacs and stuff doing that. So she was a comedic singer. And this was like her old and made to look even older. And But obviously she had a full life and career, too. But then we had a few uh, interesting side notes. Oh, Howard Hoffman, who was Jonas Slides. Uh, he lived till he was 75. A lot of other credits. Not extensive, but, you know, worked quite a bit. And then we had a few people that are are like edging toward that tragedy I talked about, where it's like younger than they should be, perhaps. Alan Marshall, who plays our Dr. David Trent, the collaborator with Annabelle. Whoops, spoiler alert. Um, the movie was put out in 1959. That's right. Uh, he only lived to 52. 
And uh, he was born in Australia, did a lot of uh, films throughout the 30s and 40s. He was kind of a matinee idol type of looking guy, which you could see in this. He's, yeah, a little bit. He's got that aging uh, matinee idol look. He did a lot of television. And the interesting thing is he did the classic uh, uh, trooper died with their boots on kind of thing. He died suffering a heart attack while appearing in Chicago with Mae West in a production of her play Sextet. He had finished the performance, but he was found dead in his hotel afterward, and he was only 52, and his son was also performing in the show, too, so that's a bit sad, and so it's a young age, um, but of our two sort of kind of romantic leads, kind of, sort of. I have my own take on this, but okay. Yes, no, and I, I love it, but we have Richard Long, who appears as Lance Schroeder, our test pilot who a lot of people probably remember from things like Twilight Zone and a lot of other television that he did. A lot of people know him from Big Valley, 77 Sunset Strip, and all these TV shows. He died very young. He died, he was only 47. And apparently he had had pneumonia when he was a kid that weakened his heart. And so he had trouble throughout his life. And he had a heart attack in 1974. One other sad little note is that... Uh, he was arrested by the police once uh, after his then-wife supposedly falsely accused him of trying to kill her while drunk. And apparently he was cleared. So who knows whether that's true or not. But we seem to be edging closer and closer to the kinds of weird, tragic stuff that, like I said, we tend to find out when we look up these people from Mystery Science Theater. And it is, in fact, Mystery Science Theater that plays a role in the biggest tragedy of House on Haunted Hill that we've tried to research and you've delved into. And why don't you tell us about that? So Carolyn Craig is the actress who plays Nora Manning, um, who is sort of, I guess for lack of a better term, our sort of ingenue in this. She's sort of young and sweet and she takes care of her family and, you know, she's just there to help out. It's, it's sort of that type of character that she's playing in this. With a hair trigger <laughs> panic button there. <laughs> like a lot of people, I think, especially now, can understand a hair trigger panic button. Yeah, I don't really blame her at all anymore. No. Um, so we'd been watching an episode of Mystery Science Theater that had uh, like a general hospital it's, short. It's Crash in the Moons. It's before Crash of the Moons. There's a general hospital short with Roy Thinnis. I think she's in two of them. She's in two of them. They show two episodes of that little bit. It's Roy Thinnis and uh, I can't remember her name now, but I found out that the other one is was Jeffrey Hunter from Star Trek was his wife at the time. So, yeah. And then she's the, the young girl Roy Thinnis is interested in. So she's in this episode and I'm not even sure why we were looking it up. We were looking up just general I hospital i think or, i was looking it up to or find the episode it. i was looking at the episode and i think i was looking up again to find out that one who's married to jeffrey hunter and then i saw carolyn craig's name and i actually couldn't believe that that was her because like we still say she looks so different she's in from what i can tell i mean this is just coming from imdb so i don't know how well documented these things are but according to imdb she was only in one episode but I can't imagine that that's right because the scenes that they show in these shorts seem to be a recurring character. 
I mean, he seems to be having an affair with her, or trying to have an affair yeah. with her. I don't know. Um, but that was, I think, 1963 mm-hmm. um, that she was on General Hospital. So only a few years after House on Haunted Hill, she looks so different. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't believe it. You and I have gone back and forth thinking maybe it's just the hairstyle because, boy, the hair they have her in on General Hospital. It's yeah. like if you can imagine... Like a, a space helmet, <laughs> but just no visor. She also has one of those kind of foreheads that if you break up her face with hair in just the right way, it totally changes the look, the shape of the face. Yeah. So so we kind of went back and forth. Is it her hair? Is it not? And I started doing some research because I thought maybe she got into like a car crash or something. Maybe she had to have some surgery done. Maybe she had plastic surgery done, which, you know... I think a lot of people don't really think about how how far back in our entertainment history plastic surgery was available sure. and people were getting it. I think a lot of people think of it as such a modern invention, I guess. But, I mean, turn of the century, basically. It's like as soon as they could figure out how to reshape something, they were doing it. So we looked her up, and lo and behold, I can't find anything about any kind of car crash or surgeries or i mean if it's plastic surgery i don't think there's going to be record of it really but i found out that she died at the age of 36 from a self-inflicted gunshot wound which shocked me because it was just one of those things where i thought huh i hadn't really seen her in a lot of things she was in quite a lot of television a lot of like several episode arcs of westerns and what did we find she was married to some rich guy or two two rich guys Uh, she got married best i can tell in 1957 um to a businessman she had met while she was on vacation and she filmed house on haunted hill the following year she had her one and only child a son Based on the math, best I can figure out is if the filming dates that we found online are correct for House on Haunted Hill, she actually was just in the beginning stages of her pregnancy when she was filming it, which I find kind of interesting. And she may not have even known yet that she was pregnant, maybe four or six weeks in. Had a son in May of 59, and then two years later divorced her husband remarried in questionable year no one seems to have the date somewhere after that she remarried someone who was um like a successful car salesman in the la area i guess just another businessman type divorced him in april of 1970 and killed herself in december of 1970 supposedly the thing is i can't find anything I can't find newspaper clippings. Yeah, we looked for newspaper. I can't even, yeah. find death notices. We did find her gravestone, didn't we, on that find a grave? On find yeah. a grave, it claims she is in an unmarked grave. They have her registered to that plot in California, in L.A., but her name isn't even on the headstone. By the way, folks, I bet you didn't know when you were starting this first episode you were actually watching Serial. <laughs> listening to Serial. <laughs> Remember this man? 
But yeah, okay. So, well, I mean, ultimately, this movie is a murder mystery. And in reading up on the actors before doing this, I felt like I was researching a murder mystery. Yeah, it's very sad. Because it's very sad. It's very sketchy. There aren't a lot of details. At the time she killed herself, she would have had an 11-year-old son. Yeah. I forget that we, we tried to look up the son and can't find anything about him either. Not much. I mean, it seems like he probably just went into his father's business, her mm. first husband. Um, it's also made it difficult to look up the son and the husband because they have the same name. He was mm-hmm. a he was a, the second or no. junior. I don't, I don't know how that works. There's really nothing there and i can understand at the time i mean it being 1970 and people not wanting to really delve into it she wasn't exactly what one would call an a-list celebrity no um i mean she was known she acted in in quite a few things she was on television um she acted like opposite some pretty well-known actors in her spate of television appearances and it was surprising to me that i couldn't even find an obituary yeah for her i'm very curious if that is in fact what happened right or not i there's not a lot of information out there about her second husband either or why there was a divorce or even when they were actually married in the first place. Um, A lot of information I'm finding is on really poorly formatted blogs about actresses of like the early half of the 20th century. And a lot of them will just use the same language and just cut and paste from Wikipedia. So you're not really getting it. And I went deep down a rabbit hole. (laughs) I, I was searching newspaper archives I kind of really, I don't know, it it felt very, like, personal. Like, I really want to know what happened to her. Was it investigated? Did they just decide it was a suicide? Why is she in an unmarked grave? I think it's, in a weird way, a testament to how much this movie means something to us emotionally. And maybe the best explanation for why we keep revisiting it is that we have such an emotional connection to it that you wind up feeling like it's personal when you find out something like that about one of the people in it. It just feels wrong and you want to know the answers. And I think so. That just shows why we, we care about this one a lot. It's, uh, but it's very sad. If anyone has, uh, any other insights or information or, uh, a subscription to a newspaper archive service that you can look up December of 1970 in LA area newspapers uh, or New York area newspapers. I tried as well because she was born in Nassau County in oh, New it's, York. It's also worth pointing out that her name is not Carolyn Craig. If anybody wants to try to figure this out, she was born Adele Ruth Craigo. With a C. Um, C-R-A-G-O. Although at the time of her death, her name legally was Carolyn C. Bryden. B-R-Y-D-E-N. So basically her, any of that. Her yeah. second husband's last name. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a little mystery I would love to solve that's sort of tangential to our viewing of the film. Yeah. I think you summed it up well. One of the things I've told you is one of my early 
sort of horror experiences in my life was playing the computer game, The Seventh Guest, um, which was a DOS game. Um, we recently downloaded, I think, on Steam. They have like an emulator for it so that you can play it. Um, and it's essentially a, a puzzle type game where you're moving around rooms of a house and solving puzzles in each room. But you are like almost an unobserved, like ghost-like narrator watching a party play out in this old house. Um, and I played that game before I saw House on Haunted Hill. And I think it it draws some of those same themes from sure. House on Haunted Hill, where there's a lot of people there. There's a history to the house. Is the house actually haunted? It's trying to kill the party guests. You know, you have to solve these puzzles to get through. But there's a, also a, a horror plot, like a story thread that's woven through the entirety of this game. And I think for me, watching House on Haunted Hill makes me feel like playing that game, feel like playing The Seventh Guest, because I'm not actually in the house, I'm not a character, but I'm being allowed to see everything as it unfolds. And I think that that's part of, for me personally, what makes it something I love so much and love revisiting, because I loved that game so much when I was probably younger than most people were expected to be when they played it, but I loved puzzle games and I, I loved sort of spooky, scary stories. And my parents were totally cool with letting a very small child just like enter the murder house game and say, go forth and solve some puzzles. Um, and it, it was a great experience. I think and there are a lot of other factors involved for why House on Haunted Hill was around enough to affect us and so many other people. First of all, it's public domain. Anybody that knows me and my past stuff and certainly knows I've dealt a lot with public domain issues when it comes to Night of the Living Dead, another movie that benefited from being in the public domain, benefited in a cultural sense. And actually there's a neat little connection that I think is a direct inspiration here because Ruth gets the blood dripping on her hand twice in the movie, which I think was the direct inspiration for them to do the similar scene with Barbara and Night of the Living Dead. I would um, agree with that. And I never found like a definitive statement from Romero, yes, we did, but I can't, it's, it seems obvious. In fact, another thing, too, is House on Haunted Hill is uh, not only influence on Night of the Living Dead in some small way, and an influence on many films that came after it, including Clue, including games like Seventh Guest. Uh, it is directly responsible for the existence of Psycho, which we might never have had were it not for House on Haunted Hill, because Hitchcock was debating doing this film he wanted to do. The studio was never going to let him do it. The, he, the people in No Psycho know he shot it black and white. He shot it with his TV crew so they could save a lot of money because he wanted to do this small little thing, but would it work? Uh, House on Haunted Hill came out on a budget of like nothing and made millions. And when he saw that, he was like, I can do that. And Psycho came out a year later. So House on Haunted Hill inspired Hitchcock to move forward with his plans for Psycho. So... It has a lot of influence on horror culture, horror filmmaking. I love the opening with the slow wait in total darkness before the screaming starts. That if you think about it in a theater, is like it's putting you in that haunted house experience. It's dark. Yeah. And between that and Emerjo flying overhead at some point, you you definitely like you're in a, a Halloween attraction. The music is wonderful throughout the entire movie. Uh, a lot of uh, tracks that are actually the haunt the House on the Haunted Hill soundtrack 
is extremely difficult to find. There is no official um, version of it. Um, I did some research into that, which, by the way, I, I looked up about um, uh, a few things in Richard Kane and some of the stuff related to the music from House on Haunted Hill, and it's hard to find. And Some people have just basically ripped it off the movie so that you can have it. But here's something I didn't know, which is there are officially published lyrics to the theme for House on Haunted Hill. I only there are not there are and uh that's why i didn't tell you before we did <laughs> there are lyrics that richard kane wrote to the theme from house on haunted hill which theme i assume is the music that plays during the opening credits that had about da 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 da, da you know as they're walking yeah. and I, so i don't exactly know how this matches up and have not yet tried to sing it to it but the lyrics are, there's a house on Haunted Hill where everything's lonely and still, lonely and still. And the ghost of a sigh when we whispered goodbye lingers on. And each night gives a heartbroken cry. There's a house on Haunted Hill where love walked. There's a strange silent chill, strange silent chill. There are memories that yearn for our hearts to return and a promise we fail to fulfill. But we'll never go back, no, we'll never go back to the house on Haunted Hill. So now you can watch the movie again and try to sing that to the music and see if that works. Well, I know what we're doing when we're done recording. That's right. <laughs> um, I wonder, though, if they <laughs> wrote lyrics to it because they wanted it to have lyrics or wrote lyrics to it because it helps them exert a certain copyright over the music. I think that's probably one reason, because that, that was why Roddenberry did the lyrics of Star Trek, so he could, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so that's possible. And, and the thing is, we're already like 40 minutes in or something like this i don't think there's any way in hell we'll ever cover all the many reasons why we love this movie but there's when you watch it as many times as we both have singly and together you start to look at everything like there are just looks i love like little looks that people have the nuances of an expression a piece of music at a time the million lines of dialogue we love in this from fix your face to you know do you like a sedative and all these lines that just become part of your brain. Like, I was just watching this time. I love how when they're about to leave the main room and they're taking their drinks, Price is drinking his drink, but he's still looking at everybody while he's tipping his head back. It's just, there's so much to appreciate. Especially the microfacial movements. Yes. Of everyone. Every time that Nora Manning panics about something, which is often... <laughs> Um, she twists and contorts her face and moves her mouth and her nose and pulls her lips oh. back. Like she does some amazing, like not screaming. Like she does some amazing, like, I don't even know the way I'd describe it. Like urgling or like, like <laughs> groaning or something. The kind of thing that you actually would potentially do in real life when you see something that's like oogie. I think she has one of those perfect faces of pure like defiance is the moment where she's telling Watson Pritchard, you know, they said they never found any heads, but you'd like to see one of those heads? And she has the smile on her face like I've won, you know, and it's brilliant. Also at that point in the movie, I think everybody's been trying to tell her that she's hysterical. Yeah. And the beauty of it, too, is that Lance, our test pilot, can't possibly have been hysterical because he has no lady parts. Yep. Um, And the doctor is obviously convinced that this is hysteria, meaning just specifically affecting women. Um, I'm 
really surprised he didn't bring any relaxing chairs or such with him <laughs> that they used to use to help cure women's hysteria with soothing vibrations. This is quite a textbook uh, uh, examination of gaslighting and all the things that it we talked really about is. a lot. They're torturing her. They are. And not only that, both Annabelle and Frederick Lauren intend to torture her. Yeah. It's just it's, who gets killed first. Yeah. It's like both of them intend to use this woman in their plan against each other um and i love watching all the interplay between lance and nora lance our our test pilot he's supposed to be i guess if you imagine sort of that era that test pilots were kind of pulled from to become astronauts i mean these were sort of yeah. Uh, playboys they were hot shots mm-hmm. he would have been like sort of well i guess covered or noticed and and you brought up some things that we've never talked about and it was only this time the one millionth time i've watched it that i suddenly realized that we don't have any idea why he needs the money lauren specifically says i happen to know that lance needs the money and it's like but why and we and lance never says anything and you've got a it's theory it's very clear why everyone else does like the journalist she's easily into the mob for something yeah they say she's got gambling debts she's that frantically and she she definitely needs money um pritchard is someone who owns this giant house and like refuses to go in it because he's terrified of it and probably isn't making money doing anything and yeah. like really does need it nora's whole family was in a car accident and she's the only one who can work. And she works probably as like a secretary or a file clerk or something mm-hmm. in one of his offices. And we know the doctor is in with Annabelle. But the ostensi- ostensibly the reason is he's here for his research into hysteria. So the man really loves hysteria. He really does. He is interested in hysteria yes. and its cures. But Lance is a test pilot who needs money. And it, it's never really said why. Oh, one other thing I'll throw in before you go with your part of it yes, is yes. we really only noticed this time also that he and Nora don't drink. At all. Neither of them. There are a couple occasions where they're offered drinks and they don't drink. And you think, test pilot, this guy, he probably is drinking up a storm. And I thought, is he a recovering alcoholic? Has he done things that maybe he needs money for to try to sort out his life? But... You also had some thoughts. My theory, and obviously there's no way to know what the actual intent was when it was written, but my theory from interpretation is it feels very much like Lance, our test pilot, who's supposed to be this like 50s ideal of masculinity, is gay. He sees... Nora instantly as someone who is like sweet and not trying to get anything out of him like she's just there she's nice he can talk to her he thinks okay she's someone I can look around this house with and I don't have to worry about like putting on a show for her although he tries he has a little bit of the machismo he tries to sort of put out there but I feel like it's performative you believe in ghosts I don't know. Well, I agree with what that doc says. You can spook yourself. I've done it in planes. Seen things that weren't really there. Or were they?
like in the way that the doctor truly believes that lady parts just make you like faint and make you see things and just mess with your head i don't really know how he gets like the head uterus connection going but he does he lance on the other hand i think it once it seems like nora is truly either actually in danger from someone else or just simply in danger from her own fear he drops that pretense he is no longer telling her, you know, I'm sure you just like spooked yourself. Oh, you know, you know, I see things when I'm out there flying my plane. He does laugh off one of her. He yeah. does. And I think that's in the beginning when he's still in a very performative mode. Mm. But the farther on it gets, the more you see, number one, Annabelle tries to sort of use seduction as a way to get him on her side yeah and that does not work not at all so either he is smarter than that and can see right through her or he is not interested in the least at all and i think he makes an interesting foil to the doctor who is interested very much so and i like it as a theory i mean i not I, only that but for me in particular there is a way in this current watching we did where he delivers a line for nora yeah. telling her that she needs to lock herself in and stay in yeah. because it's safer that way and it's like this line that feels like he's telling her it's just safer stay to, in to stay in interesting than to be out and i i doubt that that was their intent truly um yeah i doubt it but it works really well it also may be an intent that shines through from the actor i don't know i mean we didn't really see much of anything in his history to suggest that he himself was anything other than fairly like run-of-the-mill like cis male yeah. actor but it's also hard to know um yeah i don't it's i don't think so but i don't think so but some of it just really comes through to me in the reading of it i i think it works great though i mean and again that you could go back to the whole general thing of it doesn't really matter what the intent was because no. you see it it works really well. I, I did want to mention while we're talking about intent, uh, only a few years ago with Castle's daughter's participation, they published a shooting script of this, which you got for me, which is a beautiful book. It's basically an exact scan of William Castle's copy of the script that includes all of his handwritten pencil notes of what shots they wanted to do. And But what's most interesting is that it includes the stuff they cut which isn't much. There's like little bits and pieces of dialogue here and there. What I find interesting is when you go through the whole thing, some of the lines of dialogue that a fan might tend to remember best are apparently things that Castle wrote in pencil on the side that are not what Rob White wrote in the script. So it's just a great example of how sometimes a movie gets better as it's being made. And But what is interesting is one of the largest chunks cut out at the beginning is Watson Pritchard telling the story of the night that he was stuck in the house. And there really isn't much that it adds to it in terms of insight, except that it just would have been one more little piece that we would say, oh, they're pulling from a real old cliche. 
because he describes the walls moving in that apparently he was stuck in a room where the walls were moving in and and they ask him well you know how far did that go and his he has a line or something he says something well when my bones started to break i passed out and so that's how they found him apparently the next morning in a room where the walls were back to normal and he was supposedly and the thing is it's like was that true because this is before lauren is there and they're having this party what the hell's going on with that was he just drunk and hallucinating but that's the story he tells and they cut that whole thing out because i guess they felt it slowed things down a little bit it's a little unclear as well if pritchard actually is sort of that far gone like does he really fear this house did all these things really happen or is he working for Lauren in the same way that the slides, the caretakers, were working for Annabelle? I've never thought that though. I feel I so either, convinced that he's. Just but I out just, of it. I feel like surely, like the rest of the party guests would have heard something about like multiple murders having happened. Yeah. In this area, like it's the kind of story I would remember if mm-hmm. it had happened, perhaps in my city at all in my lifetime and like clearly it did because it's his his sort of same generation relatives i wanted to throw out another side thing which is when you love a movie you're still also perfectly able to point out its many problems and there are some weird things in this movie that are kind of silly like we have a long list of them why is watson pritchard still able to pull the knife out of that weird compartment in the couch in the main room and why would you have that Anyway. A couch, is a couch box a thing? Like the arm lifts up and it's got a compartment inside? Why, why is there a big vat of acid in the basement? And I don't know. Does anybody listening do anything to do with wines? Because I tried to research this and I've never found anything that says that making wines involves maintaining a big vat of acid in your basement. And why is there still acid in it that you can demonstrate that the acid works when you're having a party where people could fall in. And have... Never mind the science that acid does not work like that. Yeah, it doesn't. Clean. Anyone who knows any science knows this. Uh, some of the really weird stuff is also, we get that scene where Annabelle's floating outside Nora's room and the rope literally comes physically inside and wraps around her feet. And it's like, if the house is truly locked down, which is you and I have now figured out that lockdown part is probably a lie anyway. Yeah. So she could either be outside or that could be a projection from inside. But the rope wrapping around her legs is a pretty sophisticated little magic trick to try to pull that doesn't seem easy to do. And neither Annabelle nor the doctor seem to show any kind of proficiency in magic. Like neither are like magicians. Nobody's doing party tricks. So I I don't know. So um, yeah, there's some, there's some weird things. There's weird choices like the thing you've mentioned where they all decide to go to their bedrooms for the night where the obvious thing to do that's the best strategy would be everybody stay together in the same room and look at each other all night. Just sit on a couch. That's the way to do it. Drink your scotch and, Um, and look at everybody else's faces. Scotch and. And then uh, one of Pritchard's I never really focused on it, but I dislike late in the movie where Watson said, where's what's her name? <laughs> Nora. It's like, great. This is how Carolyn. I mean, he's also movie. just like drunk and staring at a dead body in a room for a while to make sure the ghosts don't come in and get her. And there's also, uh, I'd made a note about how there's a real weakness in Annabelle and David's plan in that she lays there in that room for quite a while, having to pretend to be dead if anybody who doesn't know is in the room 
And when Lauren comes into the room, what would have stopped him from grabbing something and stabbing her to prove that she's dead? But he doesn't. She's really banking on the fact that he's not going to do something weird to try to see whether she's really dead or not. She just lays there. And that's... Although I guess ultimately he would never want to do something as vulgar as just stab her. Yes, right. So it's like whether or not he thinks she's actually dead, I think she knows him well enough to know that he'll he'll go along with it to see where it's going. Like rather than try to see whether or not she's actually dead. Like if he presumes she's not dead, he'll say, okay, she's trying to fake being dead. So where's she going with this? A few other last things that I had uh, noted. Basically, every time we ever watch this movie, we could probably do a completely different episode on it. Probably. Um, One is that it's always gotten me that he's supposed to actually be firing the gun in front of Annabelle's face. Because the way the shot is done is he's demonstrating the guns for them and he shoots the thing on the mantelpiece. It actually works. And whether or not you believe that he's using one of the ones with blanks or what, because he filled Nora's with blanks, supposedly, or if they're live, the fact is we hear the shots. In other words, in that moment, the sound of a gunshot is supposed to be happening directly in front of her head. But of course, they cut away and then cut back. And of course, the actor doesn't have anything genuinely happening in front of her face. But because of that, she has no reaction whatsoever. And it's insane that that gun is supposed to be going off directly in front of her face and she doesn't react at all. Or say, hey, what are you doing? Nothing. Although, I mean, that is part of their relationship dynamic. Yeah. So Um, I I might be able to let that one slide. And then we also, a couple of things we thought were inconsistent this time in that David starts trying to drag Lauren into the acid after Nora has supposedly shot him, which seems completely at odds with the entire point of their plan which was to get Nora crazy enough to shoot Lauren so that if anybody investigates, they'll see that Nora shot Lauren. Why drop him in the acid and try to eliminate the evidence of the fake crime they've just created? It makes no sense why he would try to do that. None whatsoever. And uh, and you thought also, you think that Annabelle's kind of hoping that David will buy it also. Yes. To get them both out of the way, basically. Because there's no reason to send him down to the basement to check and make sure that Nora actually shoots him. It's like, let it play out. And if it doesn't play out, you try this again another day. Mm -hmm. And then of course, at the very end of the movie, we get a Murjo or a Murgo who is delightful and who you've uh, replicated uh, the shot of at least a couple times. And maybe one day again, we'll do it again. (laughs) Next time we feel comfortable walking through a store at Halloween time. Who are you? Why aren't you masked? Who are these people? But what else can we say at this point about House on Haunted Hill? We'll be watching it forever because we love it so much. But I still can't quite. I don't know if we've really covered why it is that we love it. It's a it's a weird little murder mystery with a truly stellar cast of people that I think all rise above the relatively simple story and and low budget and obviously it's like this is not a poorly made film and it was a big hit at the time and it's just an accident as with many things that it's public domain so many people got to experience it never ever watch a colorized version we almost uh fell into that for a second and turned that off right away mm-hmm. bad move amazon prime i don't know there's just everything about it is is a delight you always want to go back to that house and spend another night there we had an amazing experience last year where we got to see it in a theater. 
um, which neither of us had ever done. Um, Count Gordy Vall hosted, uh, that was in Silver Spring, right? Yeah. Yeah. We did find it a bit jarring, though, how many people were laughing at it. Very. A little too much. Like, we didn't find it nearly, they were laughing at it like it was inept. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Not at all. No. But it was still a, a wonderful thing to see it in a theater. Yeah. And I think I think sometimes socially, because I can't imagine everybody in that theater weren't fans, because that was the whole point, but I wonder how much of that laughing was the self-conscious laughing that comes with thinking... I probably shouldn't be enjoying this as much as I am, so I'll laugh to make it seem as if I think it's funny. But maybe that's why. But no, it's uh-huh. not. It's it's a beautifully made movie. It's a great movie. Okay, so that's about an hour on that. So uh, next episode, another hour on House on Haunted Hill. <laughs> nah, we'll, we'll start every episode with an hour on House on Haunted Hill. We'll move on to other things. We will but... retitle this podcast, What Happened to Carolyn Craig? Well, we'll we'll revisit that if anything ever comes to light. For but, sure. But it's a sad footnote to what is otherwise one of our all-time favorite movies and one we will revisit at least once or twice a year, if not more, uh, for as long as we're watching movies. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. But that isn't the end of the House on Haunted Hill franchise. Gosh, I wish it were. Because in 1999, for reasons that no one will ever truly understand, uh, Robert Zemeckis and Joel Silver and a few other people teamed up with Castle's daughter and set up Dark Castle Films to do remakes of William Castle movies and some other stuff. And actually, in upcoming episodes of this podcast, we're likely to cover just about all of the main ones that came out in those first few years, because one of the reasons you have this uh, one of these to look at is it's on a combo pack with a couple of the other dark castle productions yeah, that's true but they in 1999 they did a remake of this with jeffrey rush stepping in as frederick lauren oh no i'm sorry as stephen price because they decided to name him after vincent price partly and in a way i kind of appreciate that because he truly is not frederick lauren anyway mm-hmm. and famke jansen as his wife annabelle no i'm sorry evelyn price who invite a bunch of people to a house. No, I'm sorry. Ghosts invite a bunch of random people to a house to have a party while the two of them uh, engage in a cat and mouse game to see who will kill who first. It is a very loose remake of House on Haunted Hill. Real loose. Like, really, like, jingly change in the pocket loose. Not least because of all the... It fundamentally alters the entire underlying premise by, in fact, establishing right from the beginning, mind you, with the switch in the guest list, that this is not the 1959 House on Haunted Hill. There are ghosts in the 1999 House on Haunted Hill. It is a haunted house, and everyone in that house is in danger because the ghosts of an insane asylum that formerly occupied that place, including its chief Mengele-like doctor, Vanicut, played with no lines of dialogue, I'm pretty sure, in that first one, by Jeffrey Combs, who I am, I will always respect and love as an actor, and hey, if he could cash that check, by all means. From here on, it gets really scary. It is a horrible, horrible movie. It is a poorly made film. The CGI in it has aged very badly. Some of the set design is not too bad, but it doesn't it doesn't even try to be similar to the original. It looks more like you're in a sunken ship in in that house. I was going to say it almost looks more like you're in a theme park ride. 
Yeah. Like you're like walking in to what would be the haunted house at like King's Dominion or yeah, something. But actually looks like in other words, it looks like on film it looks like a they're set. filming on a set, yes. like on a ride. Yeah. And I think is the thing that goes back to I mentioned a little bit when we were talking about like a sexual component in the first movie. Like I have no problem. Some stories you tell sex is a part of it. Some stories you tell something crude or dark or gory or violent is a part of it. And certainly, hell, anybody knows us. We've seen countless zombie movies and other movies where the blood and gore is everywhere. And we love those movies. It depends on what the movie is. House on Haunted Hill is a movie about these two people playing this cat and mouse game in the house. And maybe by, partly by virtue of when it was made and partly by what it is, there's, with Price and Omart particularly, there's a suave aspect to it there's an elegance to it they are not crude people they are sharp intelligent murderous people and the best i think you could really say well i mean best it's just like the most apt comparison maybe to something that is sexual is that their entire cat and mouse game does sort of feel like foreplay yeah but it's by again by virtue of when it was made that would always be subtext yes there's nothing obvious about it. and then it is so jarring and as a fan of the original movie, starts to verge on so offensive that the people doing the remake with the full intent and participation of Castle's daughter and the intent on trading on the memory and love of that first film to make a film also called House on Haunted Hill, make a movie that is so relentlessly vulgar and distasteful. I don't, I don't remember how long it is before the first fuck gets said in the movie. And well, it's within the first, like, two minutes that somebody gets their top ripped off. Yeah. Like, in the flashback to the insane asylum. Yeah, there's topless nudity for no reason. Price and his wife are hateful, vulgar, low people that you have... Like, we talked about how even if Vincent Price's character of Lauren is a killer... You go into it sort of largely on his side. If you're a fan of him, he pulls you in. It's sort of the Corleone thing of you you root for the people who's your who are your POV characters. There's also that feeling of did he actually kill his wives or did he just frighten them to death? Like right. he really likes frightening people. You could frighten someone to death. Yeah. So maybe he did. I mean he didn't. He killed them. Yeah. He definitely killed them. But this guy is garbage. His wife is garbage. They actually get down to a knockdown, drag out physical fight by the end. So he has no problem with dirtying his hands. They're hurling obscene insults at one another constantly. She's using intimating that he's gay to be an insult, among other things. But they're just disgusting people. Um, and then among our guests, we have Peter Gallagher stepping in as the collaborator this time. Although what's interesting to me is he kind of looks to me more like somebody you'd map to Lance, but it turns out he's more the David character. Um, but our leads, I guess, more or less, are Ali Larder, who seems to turn up in every other movie we've watched lately. I don't know what it is. And Tay Diggs. And the two of them are our leads. They're supposed to be our Lance and Nora. Basically, yeah. I mean, although, again, there's no real match to almost anything. And, and that's the thing. Chris Kattan is playing Watson Pritchett. In the same position as Alicia Cook's Watson Pritchard, but they deliberately name him Pritchett. And it's like, if you're doing a remake and you've named him the same as the previous character, what the hell are you changing the last name for? What is the point? I don't know, because nothing's the same. 
All I'm saying is, I don't ever need to watch this again, but what I would watch is a super cut of every second that Chris Kattan is on screen in this movie. If someone somewhere has put together a House on Haunted Hill remake, just the Chris Kattan bits, (laughs) I would watch that because I actually truly love him in this because he is clearly somebody who is neurotic um he says right off the bat that like his father died in a mysterious construction accident that is not mysterious because he knows the house is haunted he believes the house is haunted he needs the money give me my money i just want to leave and he gets trapped there with everyone else and his response is well we're dead Mm -hmm. we're all gonna die i'm gonna drink and it's like and he is delightful like throughout the movie because it's this wonderful combination of somebody who is already convinced that they're doomed he has his own history with the house so he has sort of hated and feared the house long enough to be sort of self-deprecating and sarcastic about it but then when he is he'll realize that they're just experiencing it for the first time and in that moment he'll dial it back and apologize for being so sharp with them. Yeah. It's like very real, very human. It's like a very understandable fear response. He is in a way, I think I love him in it because he's dialed down. I said, it's sort of like Chris Kattan doing Jeff Goldblum. A lot of his performance feels a little like that. It's like, he's less manic and frenetic as he is in a lot of the comedy work that he does and, and he so, gets to be a hero too yeah oh the ghost of chris Catan. yeah yeah i was sad but i thought initially he turned up in the sequel and then i found out and he i'm doesn't, pretty sure so. i remember i yeah. had remembered sort of that final scene of knowing who makes it out but it's a completely different type of plot because the original movie like we said is sort of this murder mystery and they're all just players in it none of the party guests are in any kind of danger Right. From being at that party. They are pawns in this game, but none of them, aside from Lance's bump on the head, are put into physical danger. And also the pace of this movie is completely... Everything in this movie is already at 11. From the start. And there's, like you mentioned, there's no even going to their bedrooms. There's no slow anything. It's just an attempt to try to set up kills, which are awful, because the CGI is terrible mm-hmm. and there's the beginnings in 99 here we're in that part with the, the herky-jerky ghost animation with everybody jerking around we start to get the camera moving and shaking not nearly as bad as it does which i can't sequel. watch if you if you at all have listened to our previous podcast episodes you know that i have depth perception problems and it results in me getting very, very violently motion sick any time that there is intense strobing or intense camera shakes and twists. I can't watch um, first person right. POV shots, things like that. So there was a lot of like flickering ceiling lights in this, which makes it hard to watch shaky cam every time the ghosts swoop in. It's just this like Jacob's Ladder, Silent Hill, Bargain Basement garbage i said like the sunken ship thing it's like the the movie is also so lazy it's the word we picked we said more than once it's like this team making this are just pulling from every boring already overused trope oh it's a crazy hospital that's haunted 
They're they're all shaking around. It's X Files cases of experimental babies or bodies on the walls, and it's green. It's just yeah. so boring. There are occasional callbacks to the original movie, but nothing. I mean, one of the notes I made was like, Lauren and Annabelle are like the evil Nick and Nora Charles from the Thin Man series. These are very elegant people. These two are just garbage. And everything about them is garbage. These two are like an episode of Cops. Yeah, right. That's very good. <laughs> and we also figured out that in 1999, $10,000 would have been 57000 but they're up to a million on this one. Yeah, they're going to get a million, million apiece. The music sounds like stuff that Midnight Syndicate wrote for one of their Halloween albums and then thought, you know what? This is garbage. We're not going to release this one. <laughs> and Dark Castle Films is like, we'll take that. I I mean, we could go over, it's just, it's a terrible film. A lot of torture porn visuals that are just so inappropriate for this kind of movie, and frankly, not successful in that kind of movie. They're just terrible. Yeah, I mean, neither of us really go in for, like, body horror, torture porn type movies. But what's interesting is, the whole time we're watching it, I'm saying, you know, this really is just torture porn. Except then we get to return... To House on Haunted Hell, which it turns out is just porn. Well, let's move on to that, because the, <laughs> the one last thing that I just wanted to mention about House on Haunted Hill is the 99 one, is that Jeffrey Combs' right-hand woman is a, is a nurse uh, who looked very familiar to me, and then I looked her up, and she's the uh, um, Serbian model Slavica Jovan, which I assume I'm pronouncing correctly, who most people remember as Gozer from Ghostbusters, so... Nice little connection there, but that's not worth seeing the movie for. Don't watch House on Haunted Hill 99, and by all that is good and decent in the world, do not watch Return to House on Haunted Hill from 2007, one of the worst movies we have ever seen. And we've seen a lot of movies. It took them eight years to get around to making this sequel. Jeffrey Combs comes back and actually has a line or two, but I'm going to guess that he was never told what the movie actually was. He probably never saw the first one. And the threadbare connection here is that Allie Larder's sister, and Allie Larder's character, who's one of the two that escapes in the first movie, has a very unceremonious off-camera death that sets up the plot for this piece of crap in which we now retroactively find out that everything Vanica did as a Mengele was because of a Baphomet idol that like infected him with evil. So now we have uh, a Chase and a Professor and his team and an evil guy, his Belloc and his team. I, I made a note, the world's worst Indiana Jones ever. This is one of the things we said, because it's literally two rival anthropologists, one of whom is a mercenary anthropologist, and the other one is like, it belongs in a museum! <laughs> yes, who, by the way, if any of you are listening who are my friends from the Doctor Who community, it's Del Tarrant from Blake 7 doing a really bad American accent. And by the way, also doing a really bad American accent um, is, uh, where do I have Everyone British in the film. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. The movie is clearly, <laughs> like, they... they Hired a lot of UK people so they could pay him less. Andrew Potts from Primeval is in it. Uh, I think this is the other thing he did besides Primeval. But yeah, it's it's terrible. We never do find out what happened to Tay Diggs' character, by the way. Sarah's dead, but what happened to him? I guess he makes it out of there. I don't know. And not only that, but when her sister goes to see her apartment, like to figure out what happened... She's living in, like, a total hole. Like, And they got to split five million. Yeah, supposedly at the end of the remake, like, she and Tay Diggs as the survivors get these cashier's checks. Five million dollars split between the two of them. So she would have had two and a half million dollars before taxes. 
even so, why is she living in like a hole in the wall? <sighs> I don't know. But it's, I don't know. This... Basically, from the very first moment that the movie opens, it feels like softcore porn that's being filmed for like a home cable movie channel. And it pretty much is. Proof is in the structure of the film, too, because one of the things about this movie is apparently it came out initially direct to HD DVD before that format lost to Blu-ray. And it was during that brief window of time where everybody was playing with the idea of making choose-your-own-adventure movies. So this movie, although it runs about 80 minutes or so, actually runs longer because you have seven moments in the film where you get to choose something that happens. As many other people have pointed out in reviewing this, and that just means there are many other people that have had to watch this crap. None of the six of the seven choices make no actual difference to the plot. In other words, it just gives you a different version of a death or a different version of something happening, but it meets back up again with the linear plot. The seventh, though, is really weird because we picked one way and then uh, the main girl uh survives at the end and and i looked it up on wikipedia and I never would have known this if i hadn't looked it up and we saw like the one likable guy dies at the end and i saw in the plot synopsis that he makes it out with her and i was like well wait a minute so we went back and chose that last that seventh choice again the weird thing is the seventh choice is whether or not the main villain dies sooner or later but that should have absolutely no bearing on um, whether, whether that other character lives or dies. And yet, that decision also sets up an ending of whether the other character lives or dies for no apparent reason. Which is crazy. Like, they couldn't even get Choose Your Own Adventure right. They don't. And they weren't even giving you, like, interesting choices. I think at least three of the choices is whether or not you should either return or answer a phone call. Yes. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> It's, These are not choices that anyone's interested in making as a viewer. Not only is there, again, tons of unnecessary nudity. I mean, again, like I said, that doesn't matter in a movie where it's relevant or there's a different context. This is just meaningless. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear. It's not like either of us are the type of people who are like, oh, nudity just has no place in a film. Like, no, that's fine. And sometimes it actually does make sense in the course of a plot. Sometimes it does punctuate the message of a certain mm -hmm. type of storyline sometimes it really drives home the cruelty of something right and it makes sense but in as terms you of pointed plot. out as you pointed out this being basically just straight up porn it's no surprise that one of the choices is character who is defined by one single line of dialogue a few minutes earlier as a lesbian or bisexual encounters two female ghosts and your choice is well should she make out with them or not Basically, I think the choice actually says, does she resist them or accept them? Something like that. And I'm thinking, okay, so this is why the movie was made. Yeah. So the guys who don't want to feel comfortable grabbing porn at the video store back when there were still video stores would pick this up and go, oh, well, at least I can dial the girl with the two ghosts and have that for three seconds. And, and it's more like three minutes. Like it's, It does go on for a while. It's a lot longer than anyone really needs to make out with a couple of ghosts in a basement. It's like, first of all, is there... Well, first of all, there's a, I have, I have a lot of questions. questions about this situation. Because, like, clearly, if not 
haunted, this place is old and gross. Yeah. Like right off the bat, everything is decrepit, old, gross, moist. I think moist <laughs> is the best way to describe this building. Ugh. Yeah. We haven't even gotten to the flesh room. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and she's in a basement by herself in what clearly used to be some kind of surgical room looking for who knows what. And, like, two young ladies of vaguely Eastern European origins wearing very, like, bondage-fashioned, like, surgical robes. One open in the front with all kinds of strippity straps and one in the back with strippity straps and... They just come wandering in barefoot in, like, the gross old place, and she's, like, licking her lips, like, this is my lucky day. She's not saying, like, who the fuck are you? Like, how did you get in here? Uh, what? Would you like a shirt? Do you need shoes? Are you hungry? Are you dehydrated? Should I call an ambulance? (laughs) No. She's like, yes, you can touch me and unbutton my shirt. It's also, we mentioned there's the beginnings of that shaky cam stuff in the first one in 99. Here in 2007, there is so much flashing light, strobing, shaky cam, frame dropping. I couldn't look at most of it. It was, it was painful to look at. It's just not good storytelling in any sense. I wish everybody would stop doing this, but this is even years ago already, but it's terrible. Flies are in the rooms. <laughs> there's flies in the rooms. They're like gathering in a room in the room of the apartment. And you mentioned, I just saw the fly got in there with them. And you see the fly. There's like the bad guys show up to Ariel's house. Ariel is the sister of Sarah, the survivor. And Sarah has mailed her, you know, a journal to protect it, which is like the oldest trope in the book, right? Right before somebody dies, they mail the magic, valuable, helpful thing to a relative or an ex or a friend or whatever. And you open it up and you're like, hmm, what's this journal? And she's like literally holding it and reading it and like answers the door while she's looking at it. And it's like a whole gang of bad guys who had killed her sister looking for the journal mm-hmm. that she's like literally just dropped at their feet. And they pick it up. But as they're coming in, I saw this huge horse fly just like fly <laughs> in because they're just filming in someone's house. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I guess they didn't redo that scene. They get one take. Mm-hmm. Fly comes in. But then later they're like interrogating her in her living room and I see the fly go by and I was like, oh. It's still there. Like, nobody tried to catch it or stop it or do anything or somebody would be like, get some flypaper on the set. So it's uh, that level of professionalism. I think one of the only things I loved in it is the moment where one of the big gun goons gets pulled apart with really bad CGI. And as you pointed out, gets gets his body pulled apart like he's tied up, like, you know, drawn and quartered, gets pulled apart. And yet the pulled apart results in like a big pool of blood and a little bit of mush on the floor as if like he didn't just get pulled apart apparently when you pull the arms and legs off a human body the entire body instantly disintegrates it just evaporates vanish into thin air but i loved andrew potts scream right after which just kept going which you'll get to enjoy now But apart from that, and uh, any Blake 7 fans wanting to see how Del Taran's hair is much shorter and grayer at this point. Oh, and, and, and when she decides that the way to defeat an evil idol that runs the flesh room at the center of an evil insane asylum is to shoot it with bullets. 
And then she's mad that the bullets don't work. She is so (laughs) mad. Like, she gets a vision. You've got, like, good ghosts and bad ghosts and whatever. One of the good ghosts, like, shows her how to find the idol. And she's like, okay. And they start, like, climbing through, like, the back channels out of a crematorium. And they're like, these walls are, like, sticky. What is this? And it's just, like, a living room made of flesh with this really tiny idol like they ran out of money for the props and like it's real small i mean we're talking like a foot tall maybe it's smaller than our microphone yeah it is smaller than our microphone it's very tiny they didn't think through the scale they no. didn't get it right no um they went to the woman who made stonehenge <laughs> <laughs> this is what you wrote so yeah. they're in this like Sort of just like drippy, like pulsing flesh room with an idol on a flesh pedestal. And she's like, everybody back away. I have to destroy it. And then she just unloads a clip at it. Mm -hmm. And then like looks at it and the gun like, why didn't that work? (laughs) By the way, flesh room. It's so painfully obvious that most of the walls of that room look like they just hung blankets and 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 painted them pink or something just awful or they like hung green blankets and then tried to sort of like put flesh cgi the flesh and probably not that smart and then the end of the movie ends with the worst cgi model of that house and it basically as you pointed out it's the end of jumanji the end of the movie there's a post-credit sequence she drops the idol down a sewer grate to wash it out to sea to free the house which, you know, I guess is great, except that, like, clearly you've now seen how evil this thing is. And, she and even, you're like, I release you. And then she even points out in the Paul Survives ending, wait a minute, it suddenly occurs to me that maybe this is what the house wanted, was for this to get out. And I'm like, huh. So thank you for releasing evil into the world. And it basically, they just pull a sexy Jumanji at the end of it. Oh my, another excuse to have somebody topless for no reason. Yeah, two people are making out on a beach and uh, they're making out on top of the idol that had washed out to sea and landed on the beach. But they don't find it under her until after she gets her top off because that's the important part. And he's like, oh, it looks valuable. And then roll credits. Except not, it's the end of the credits. So Mm. roll post credits. Ugh. They were going to make a third one in that new group, too. They were going to make another one of those. I mean, I think that would... Isn't that, like, a crime against humanity at that point? But they didn't, so... Yeah, but the thing is, it took them so long between the 99 and the 2007. Mm -hmm. For all we know, they're still going to do it. They could still do it. So just let me be clear. No! Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nblitovsky, that's nblitovsky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were House on Haunted Hill, 1959, yes, House on Haunted Hill, 1999, no, and Return to House on Haunted Hill, 2007, ugh. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. Would you care for a sedative? Get out! Get out, all of you! All of you, get out of here and leave me alone! Just get out of here! You think it's all right to leave her by herself, Doctor? I wish she'd taken the sedative.